Well, to begin with, uh, let me say just a word to you, new parents. We have a lot of new parents here. Uh, I got some bad news for you. And here's the bad news. Parenting doesn't get easier as your kids age. It's true. I used to think it did. I vividly remember thinking, all right, if we can teach our kids to bathe themselves, teach them to clothe themselves and feed themselves, things are going to be easier. It's going to be so much easier. And I was dead wrong. Uh, <laughs> so the reality is, guys, um, there's a lot of reasons why the, they it's hard to raise kids as they get older. But uh, uh, there's a host of reasons why. But as parents, we have one job description, one job description to train our kids up in the way that they should go. Train them up to be godly men and women. That's our responsibility under the Lord's grace. We get about 18 years maybe to help kids the Lord's have given us to help them understand how to navigate the world that they're going to be walking into and come out on the other side of our parenting by the grace of God, uh, wise, godly, mature, healthy citizens that are not conforming to the patterns of the world, but instead are conforming to the patterns of Christ. So our work as loving parents is to train them to be godly men and women and not just letting them obey their passions, whatever that might be. And what winds up happening is, as I've learned, I have a 14-year-old and 11-year-old. What winds up happening is, is as they age, right, their interests begin to complexify. The world begins to complexify. The decisions around all of it begins to complexify. So you have all this complexification and a world of complexification. It's a constant moving target. And oh, by the way, your schools, your sports teams, your friends, they got plenty of opinions about what they want your kids to do too. And you're the ones that have been given responsibility in keeping with the work of the church to help them know how to go. It's hard to raise kids. And again, we get 18 years, maybe, to prepare them for the rest of their lives. And so, guys, it is spectacularly unsurprising that the birth rate in a hedonistic, individualistic culture is going down. That's so unsurprising. And dog ownership is going up, right? Right? Because it's easy to raise a dog, right? To care for a dog. It's hard to raise kids, right? To help them understand the way that they should go. And so we, as parents, when we see our kids wandering, it's the work of parenting to lovingly say, no, come over here, don't go over there. That's what parental love is and does. And similarly, it's the same for the family of God, the church, to do that same work for its members. Like parenting, the work of the church Their job is to prepare their people, not just for the next 50, 60 years, but to prepare them for eternity. That's the work of the church. It's the work of the church to prepare them for eternity, to teach their people the truth in love. So that like in parenting, when the truth sees its members wandering from the truth, like any good parent, the work of the church is to rescue them. Because again, the church knows this is not just 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. This is eternity. The church understands that more than anybody else on planet earth. This is some of the most important work that the church does to teach the truth and to rescue those that are wandering from it. It's critical that the church do this hard and difficult work. Which might explain because it's so hard why so few churches might actually give themselves to that work because it's so hard. But friends at this church as unpopular as it might be in this city and maybe in the country at large at this church we will not bow the knee to Caesar. We will not uh, in any way bow the knee to the world and its value system. We will give ourselves to the eternal truths. As our covenant reads, quote, we will walk together in brotherly love, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. This is what love is. This is what love does. And beloved, we would be fools to do otherwise. We would be unloving to do otherwise. So as a result of that big idea this morning, correction is life and love. Correction is life and love. And so implication there to not pursue others, to not correct, would would be to be unloving and not life-giving instead offering death. Okay, here we go. We come into the book of James so if you're new this morning, you're, you're coming in. We've been studying James since the beginning of January. 
going line by line, verse by verse. And so we've come into these final two verses of chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. We've been describing the book of James as defining what authentic Christianity actually is. We've said that it's faith. James has been teaching us it is a faith. It's a trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a faith that works. Right? It, it lives, in other words, and talks in a certain way. And it lives and it doesn't live and it doesn't talk in another kind of way. In other words, to be a Christian is to operate under a certain law. But this law, unlike religious, other religious laws, is referred to by James as a law of liberty. It's a law of freedom. It's not an enslaving so-called freedom that impossibly tries to throw off all objective realities and restrictions. No. Christianity is honest about the fact that as humans we all have restrictions. We just need the right ones. And the way of Christ, we believe, is the right law, is the right way. It's the true freedom. Christians understand that there are doctrinal and moral realities that we were made to live in accordance with in order to be the people that God made us to be. To not live inside of those, to not teach those and rescue those that are wandering, to do otherwise is to enslave, is to lose freedom, not to gain it. Or in a word, James has been teaching us that faith works. This is what James has been teaching us. Now, James has been brutally and uncomfortably honest about this life under uh, the economy of God, right? In the world, he's been honest that it's hard. He's been honest that about this life in the world is hard. He's told us that we are going to face, y'all remember this way back in January, we will face trials uh, of various kinds where we're going to, when these trials hit, we're going to be tempted to wander from them. From the truth. But God is using them. He taught us back in chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. God is using them to mold us into the men and women. That are kinds of the people that are steadfast. That will go on to be. He's going to use those trials to make us steadfast and even perfect. Like a good parent. Our father is preparing us for heaven. While we're still on the earth. James has taught us. That life in Christ is hard. But we must pray. He taught us at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 5, we must pray and ask for wisdom in order to know how to navigate the world and let steadfastness have its full effect so that we would then be prepared for eternity. That's how James began his letter. And guess what? That's how he ends it. Same way. You remember last week we talked a lot about prayer. You can see that back in chapter 5, verses 13 down to 18. And now you'll notice... How he ends in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. This is on page 1013 of the Pew Bibles, which are in front of you. If you're new to this kind of preaching, it'll be much better for you if you just stare at that passage that I'm preaching. It sets the agenda, not me. James 5, 19 to 20 says the following. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Three movements to the sermon this morning. We'll talk about the truth. We'll talk about, secondly, wandering from the truth and then rescuing those back into the truth. So first off, start with the truth, the truth. So friends, this this passage is speaking to those, uh, speaking to the one who rescues someone from wandering from the truth, from that which is real. That's the big idea there that we got. The correction is life and love, right? But, But it's important for us to stare at some things that James assumes that maybe us in this context don't assume to be the case. And the first is bound up in those words, wandering from the truth. So friends, James assumes that we all know and believe that there is not only something called truth, but also something called the truth. He assumes that those things are real and we can know them. Truth meaning that which is real, that which accords to reality, right? I believe that it's true that this is made of wood. This is not made of water or sand. I can know that it's true. He assumes that we can know this. 
And so now the reality is, friends, that may seem something so obvious to us that it doesn't even need to be said. But friends, it does need to be said. It does. Because we are living in a place and a time where truth is being subjected now to feelings. Feelings now are the masters and they are being, and truth is being subjected to them. As one author has said not long ago, we used to say, I think, therefore I am. And now we say, I feel, therefore I am. And this way of thinking about letting feelings guide the way and any truth can't even be known. This was born out of the idea that that exactly this idea that feelings lead the way was born out of the idea that truth can't be known. It's where it sort of comes from. Uh, we have got to a place to where our context would say whoever's in power sort of constructs the truth, whatever it is. But trust, tr- truth, it is taught, uh, can't be known. And certainly the truth about God, they would say, cannot be known. And so we should just then be guided by our feelings. Whatever we think or feel like is the case is the truth. And yet, friends, the reality is when we study the book of James right here in this passage, James understands and most all of human history would understand on every continent of the earth has understood that truth is knowable. And not only that, more specifically, the truth about God is knowable. James assumes that. The truth about God is knowable. And not only James, not only does James assume that truth is knowable and the truth about God is knowable, but the rest of Scripture in the Bible assumes that we can know the truth about God clearly. I'll give you one example. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Bible understands we can know truth and we can know the truth about God. And as Christians, we believe that we can know that truth in general. More specifically, we can know the truth about God since we were created in his image. We were created with the capacity to know him. Therefore, since James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, James assumes that we can know when that happens. We are not like the the blind men touching the different parts of the elephant, sort of guessing what we're feeling, right? The Bible comes with a position, as it were, to say the elephant has spoken. You're touching a trunk. We don't have to guess. God has spoken in the person and the work of his son through the word of God, the Bible, his revelation. But what exactly is the truth about God that James is referencing here there in verse 19 when he says the truth? What exactly is the truth that he means here? Well, in one sense, we could say very simply, well, it's anything that James has written in the letter, right? That would be true. He's he's written about it because he believes it's true. Say, do this, don't do that. So we could say that. That would be true. But the truth that is being referenced here most fundamentally is the truth about God and his gospel. God and his gospel, namely the Trinity, right? That that there's one God and three persons, father, son, and spirit. His son is the image of that invisible God. He said, Jesus Christ has said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He, Jesus has come to do exactly as James 5, 19 and 20 teaches. Jesus comes to bring sinners back by saving our souls through his covering of the multitude of our sins by his death and resurrection, and then to lead us into a new and holy life fit for heaven. God and his gospel, this is the truth. Ephesians 1.13 makes this clear when it says, In him you also, he's, he's writing to Christians, In whom you also, when you heard the word of truth. What's that? Comma. The gospel of your salvation. This is the truth that James is wrestling, uh, referencing most fundamentally here. God and his gospel. A truth that is clearly seen and taught in the Bible. Which is why Christians see the Bible as the truth. This is our functional authority in our lives. It is God's revelation, his word to sinful humanity. To order us back into a life as it was intended to be. To order us inside of that law of liberty. And so truth is knowable. The truth about God is seen in the gospel. It too can be knowable. Uh, And we can see such that if someone were to wander from it, we would know. James assumes that, that we're able to do that and see that. But also James wants us to see the importance of this truth. The importance of the truth, of living out the truth about God and his gospel. 
It's so important that he wants us to know that bringing people back into the conformity to the truth is to rescue their souls from eternal death. He wants you to know it's that important. This is no trifle to James, rescuing people that are wanting from the truth. This is no trifle. The truth in particular is no trifle to him. This is not just some, you know, ancient musings from some first century Jews or sort of about some things that are going on. No, he believes the truth is knowable and this truth is so important. You need to rescue them because we're talking about eternality here. He sees this work of rescue as some of the most important work in all of the world as evidence, not only by the fact that he ends his letter here, but because of the implications of those that don't get rescued. In other words, you will think about this more in a bit, but you are not saved. If you are not saved and not covered, therefore, James would say, you stand to inherit eternal death. This truth is of the utmost importance. And so if, if you were to ask James, what's more important? Knowing the truth and rescuing people from wandering away from this truth or knowing the latest news at Wall Street or cable news. Which one's more important? James would look at you like you had three heads. So this is the most important thing that you could ever be doing and thinking about and giving yourself to. That's not to say that other things are unimportant. It's just this is the most important thing. All of the things of the world come up underneath this since as he has already said. Y'all remember this when James taught us in James 4 that this life is but a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. So we should be giving ourselves to that which is eternal. Truth is noble. Truth about God is noble. And it is of paramount importance. And lastly, as it relates to this truth piece, the truth that I think James wants us to see here, he would also want us to see the place of truth. In one sense, we could say, as we have already said, this is the truth. The Bible is the truth. That would be true. That's the most important thing I think we would say is that the Bible is the truth. That's the place we would go to get the truth. However, uh, we, where we might go to understand the truth of the Bible, where might we go to get up under this, to know that this is right? The place of truth. Well, you could say that you could read it on your own and that would be exactly right. Right. This is one of the things that the Reformation recovered, that the individual Christian under the economy of God and the power of the spirit, you can sit at home and understand the Bible and come to the truth of it. William Tyndale translated the Bible for this purpose. He says, I want the plowman in the field to know as much as the priest. You could read it in a small group and the like, but I want you to see here, guys, James assumes a context of a community of faith to define and orient and rescue the people of God in the truth. James assumes a context of a community of faith that is actively defining and orienting and rescuing the people of God. Look back up there in verse 13. You'll see this. Verse 13, verse 14, and verse 19. Notice he starts the the passage there the same way in all three of those verses. He starts with, is anyone among you? Is anyone among you? Is anyone among you? The you there is plural. For those of us from the South, y'all know what it is. It's y'all, right? Is anyone among y'all, right? One could say, well, we should then answer the question, well, who's the y'all? Who's the you all? In one sense, we could say it's Christians. And that would be exactly right. Look at verse 19. It says they're my brothers, right? My brothers and my sisters. Christians, right? Christians. The address there is to my brothers, my sisters in Christ who have been baptized and are following Jesus, the family of God, all Christians, those that have repented and believed on Christ. But where are the Christians among us? Where are they? Are they just the ones that we happen to bump into? Are they just the ones that we happen to bump into? Or maybe the one or two Christians we kind of like. Is that who he's talking about? Is that the context that he assumes as the of the among you all? Well, no, that'd be too undefinable and it would be too easy to just choose your two or three handful of Christians to do life with them. The place of truth can definitely be found in the individual Christian. Yes and amen. But James is also aiming at the community of faith, the church. You can see this in reference to the elders of the church in verse 14. You can see this, the need to be living out the faith by confessing your sins one to another in verse 16. All right, we 
talking about the place where the truth can be oriented and defined and, and seen to, to, to know if you're wandering from it. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul refers to the church, truth as the church as the place of truth. When he says that one, there in 1 Timothy 3.15, one learns how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church is understood to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We can read in Ephesians 3.21, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And of course, the church is both universal across span of time and place and history, but also the church is visible. It's local. It's here. Right? In order to be part of the universal church, it assumes that you're actively having elders over you and you're confessing sins to one another in a local church. Healthy, gospel-loving, definable communities of the gospel. This is where the place of truth can be found in addition to just going to God in His Word. Okay. This is the truth about God that James defines. But let's now consider those that wander from this truth. Wandering from the truth. This is the heart of James' concern. Men and women who wander from the truth and the beauty and the goodness of those that pursue them. And restore them into the fellowship, to that family, into that community, into that church. And friends, I would argue that this has been James's concern throughout the entire letter. I really wrestled with this before we are started. What's going on here? And I think he lands the plane here in these last two verses because this has been his burden throughout the entire letter. Thus his reason for ending like this. As his congregation has dispersed, remember chapter 1, verse 2 there, the congregation has dispersed. He's seen what was already a concern in his congregation while they were in Jerusalem. It's now getting accelerated. He's seeing that. Maybe he's hearing about that as they've dispersed. He's found, as it says, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 12, people not persevering in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 6, people in doubting. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4, people becoming friends with the world. Chapter 2, people preferring the elites and neglecting the poor and disenfranchised. People taking the name of Christ and living with no fruit to the faith. That's chapter 2. People talking recklessly. Chapter 3, lying, slandering, and gossiping. The rich taking advantage of their situation, that's chapter 4. People living in the wisdom from below and not the wisdom from above. And so James writes as a concerned pastor. He sees people wandering. He's concerned first for the witness of Christ, his king. But he's also concerned for the eternal welfare of these people that he used to pastor. And so he writes in an effort to rescue wherever the dispersion might be tempted to wander or where they already are wandering. In other words, and it's important to not miss this, guys. James's letter is doing what he's telling us to do. He's instructing others to rescue people from wandering from the truth. That's what his letter's doing. He's helping define what authentic Christianity is and trying to bring them back in the fold by the grace of God through this letter. But he knows that by writing this letter, he's limited. He doesn't see them. He doesn't live with them. He doesn't walk with them. He, he wants a church to have a community, uh, a culture, that is, that's rescuing wanderers from the truth. He, he wants a community, a church community that's teaching the truth. And the culture inside that church is trying to rescue those that might be wandering. He wants a culture of a church like that. And I think that James, I, in fact, I would assume that James would would not only... Uh, know that that's important because it's just true. But James would have known about redemptive history. He would have known the predominance of wandering in the past. He could have easily called upon the entire narrative of the Old Testament. Right? Remember there in Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to go over. Do you all remember the song? Right? If we did that, some of the times in which I preached that. Remember, Moses teaches them a song. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're not going to get it right. Remember that? Right? And that's exactly what happened. James would have known that. They went into the land and they did. They wandered. They, they said that they would follow God and this Ten Commands and the law and the like. But in fact, when they got in there, they didn't. They just gave themselves to other gods. James would have known that even after the Lord exiled them out of the land and sent them east and brought them back in by his grace, they came back in. And then they said, right, we're going to do the right thing. We're not going to intermarry. And what happened by the end of the book of Nehemiah? They were back to doing the same things, wandering from the truth. He would have known that. James would have known likely firsthand about Judas. James would have known firsthand about Peter and what he did the night of Christ's betrayal. 
And we know, don't we, all of the wanderings of the others in the New Testament. Paul writes about one of his frequent missionary partners, Demas, who out of love for this present world left him and went back to Thessalonica. Or how Paul wrote about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, quote, swerved from the truth, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And we know about Jude who wrote about those that would be, that would creep in and pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Jude 4. We can force, can think about the church in Ephesus who lost their first love. On it goes. Time and again. And of course, many of us can think about our own experiences, can't we? Some of you maybe had parents when you were young. They loved Jesus and were committed to the work of discipleship and prayer and the like. And now, here it is, you're an adult and your parents maybe haven't rejected the faith, but they barely resemble anything that looks like Christianity. Or maybe you could call upon that experience of that college roommate that really was fervent, really devoted. And now, today, they barely resemble anything that's a Christian. Maybe they rejected the faith, but maybe they take the name of Christ. But again, they approve things that God clearly says are wrong, and they don't really give them much, themselves much to Jesus. We all have those stories. Wandering is regrettably common. In fact, it is so common that it's a dominant concern of the New Testament. Consider, for instance, Jesus' warnings regarding the wide and easy way that leads to destruction that most people will enter into versus the narrow way that's hard that leads to life and only a few will enter. Or consider Jesus' teaching on the four soils, right? Two of which seem to illustrate some kind of a faith when in the long run it turns out they were only rooted in things of the world and they wander. Or consider Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, 12 and 13 when Jesus says, because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And he goes on to say, those that persevere to the end will be saved. So there's something about the more that lawlessness, more that sin becomes normalized, there will be an adverse effect such that the more sin becomes normal, people that maybe took the name of Jesus, their hearts begin to grow cold in that environment. We could be reminded of Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders. Final words. He's there on the beach. He's never going to see him again. What does he say? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. For fierce, fierce wolves from among you will come in speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Or Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Not the truth, whatever they want to believe. And so from biblical examples to biblical warnings to biblical commands to our own experiences. It's not hard to see that wandering is sadly common. We should not be surprised to find it even when we are laboring to carefully uh, pursue others here in the church. It has happened in our life together. It will happen likely again. No matter how much we might teach or pray against it. And so, beloved, be warned. Be warned so that it doesn't happen to you. But I ask the question as we think about that. How might we recognize wandering? You might wonder. How do we know when wandering's happening? How would you, how would we know? How might you know for yourself if you are beginning to wander from the truth? Well, first, it's important that you know a couple things. First off, I just want to reiterate again, Jesus loses nobody. Everybody that he purchases will endure to the end. Again, we'll think about that more in a couple weeks. But first, wandering from the truth is rarely sudden and distinct. Instead, it's commonly subtle and gradual. Wandering from the truth is rarely sudden and distinct. Instead, it is commonly subtle and gradual. It's a kind of slow fade. It often begins in private and later reveals itself in public. J.C. Rao says that you can be sure that people will fall in private long before they fall in public. So maybe this could be habits of prayer and meditation either never form or they do and slowly they get compromised as you learn to depend more upon yourself or your group and their teaching and their practices and activities. 
Maybe Bible reading, memorization, meditation slips. Slowly you begin to doubt the truth as you increasingly believe whatever the patterns of the world are teaching you. You learn to listen, to love, and to be guided by fitting into the world more than you are listening, loving, and fitting into the words of your beloved Savior, Christ. Their words, the words from the world, become more important than God's words. And before you know it, you find yourself submitting to those words, not to Jesus' words. Or maybe, maybe you kind of begin to do the kind of practice that we see taught in Romans one thirty-two, where maybe you don't do that sin, but you give approval to those that do. Romans one thirty-two. And maybe amidst all this, amidst your wandering, you don't tell a fellow Christian brother or sister, you don't tell a pastor, you kind of believe these things quietly, live this way quietly. And it's not long after this that the public aspects of the Christian faith begin to slip because they've lost their importance. Evangelism, regularly gathering with the church, taking the Lord's Supper, giving of your finances and your time and service to others in Jesus' name. These begin to fall off. And soon enough, you might still claim to believe in Jesus, but there's little to nothing that would indicate that he's changed you by his love and you're conformed more to the heavenly world than the earthly world. You begin to love the world more than you love Jesus and the teaching of his word. Sometimes there are secret sins that accelerate this progression. There's pridefulness over something that you really want. Greed, adultery. You begin sleeping with someone that is not your spouse. You start to steal money because you want more money or attention from that thing or that place. You begin to manipulate people with your anger. And it becomes then convenient to deny the truth instead of repenting of it and being conformed to the truth. Hidden affection for sinfulness leads you to publicly deny truths that condemn the behavior that you've come to already accept privately. But ultimately... Wandering friends can be discerned in two areas, one of two areas, doctrinal or moral, doctrinal or moral truths. You can see this wandering from the truth, doctrinal and moral truth, the way you live out that doctrine. It's a broad way to understand it. Doctrinal truth, meaning what you believe for us, most fundamentally, that would be defined in our church's statement of beliefs. And then moral truths, how you live out what you believe. Again, for us, that would be illustrated in part by our church's covenant. So maybe the the doctrinal truth, you deny the Trinity. You deny the sufficiency or the exclusivity of the gospel. Something like that or on others. Or moral, you begin to sort of approve sinfulness and the like. And live your way or approve others in such a way that is not in keeping with that truth. These are the two areas that we evaluate in order to determine if someone is wandering from the truth. And if in one of these two areas there's a constant pursuit of sin, doctrinal or moral, then it reveals that there is not a pursuit of Christ. Now, to be clear, again, all of us sin. Nathan Knight sins. The difference is, is the repentance of that. When I see it, I'm turning away from it. I'm striving to get it right by the grace of God. But when one is wandering from the truth, there's no repentance, no desire to kind of come up under the love of Christ. And again, this wandering is rarely sudden and distinct. It's often subtle and gradual. And so I ask you a question. Ask us as a church a question. What sins are stalking this congregation? What sins are stalking this congregation? How is the deceiver doing that? How is he secretly or subtly wooing us personally or corporately to compromise doctrinally or morally? What are the narratives that figure prominently in our minds collectively or personally that would lead us to wander from the truth? I think more broadly nowadays, the sins associated with gender, sexuality, and race are common ones nowadays in our context to reveal wandering. Those are very normal things that we could almost expect to find. Those narratives are so loud. Lawlessness, remember what Jesus says, lawlessness has increased love of God in the face of that grows cold. Or more personally, fill out this sentence in your mind. Maybe if you're taking notes, you can write this down. If the evil one were to deceive me away from the truth, it would probably be by blank. 
What's in that blank? If the evil one were to deceive me away from the truth, it would probably be by blank. What's in that blank? And does another brother or sister know about what's in that blank? Have you talked to about it? Have you tried to, by the grace of God, drag it into the light? Have you been fervently, as we learned last week, fervently praying, not just sort of passively praying? Well, friends, take a look at where wandering without rescuing leads. Look at verse 20. Wandering without rescuing leads. Verse 20 says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, implication, if you aren't saved from your wandering from the truth of God and his gospel, then your soul will die forever as you are left to pay for your own sins in hell. You may find some satisfaction in this vapor life for 50, 60, 70 years. But friend, you'll live in judgment apart from God forever. And friends, I get that the teaching on hell is hard. I get no joy out of standing here talking about it other than to say that it's true and it's good because God says it is. I get that the teaching on hell is hard. It's difficult to swallow. At times, I'm troubled by it myself. But friends, it is clear and unequivocal teaching of not only the Bible, but of the Lord of love himself, Jesus. He clearly and often talked about hell. So many teachers want to present Jesus as the meek and mild Jesus that is only interested in you just sort of being nice and, you know, doing the best you can and everybody sort of goes to heaven unless you're Adolf Hitler. But friends, that is not what Jesus taught. If you just read one gospel, you'll see that within five minutes of reading it. Jesus taught regularly that hell is real, hell is awful, and it is reserved for anyone whose sin is not covered by the blood of the Christ on the cross. Jesus himself, everybody knows that verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's in a conversation with Nicodemus. Well, just a few lines down from that, in John 3, 36, Jesus says to Nicodemus, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. That's the lips of Jesus. And so it only makes sense that Jesus would then say in Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And as uncomfortable as this teaching on eternal death is, friends, it's, it must be this way. Otherwise, why else would we trust in the eternal goodness of God? Maybe you didn't expect me to say that. Friends, if if there is no punishment, no justice for wrongdoing, great or small, why should we believe that God is good? But because there is, because God promises to pay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because he promises to administer justice in keeping with his perfect character, friends, we can rejoice that he's a God of justice. Not only because of the teaching on hell, but all the more because of the teaching on the cross of Christ. Where Jesus invites all sinners everywhere, great and small, to come and be forgiven. To be rescued from that hell. To have heaven at no cost to yourself. But instead, he will give you heaven at the cost of his own blood. How else do we not see the goodness of God in that? He's clear about hell, but he's clear about heaven. And he invites everyone everywhere to come in. You'd be rescued from hell. And be brought into heaven by grace. Jesus left heaven to rescue us from our wanderings from the truth. He was the only one. Jesus is the only one that never wandered from the truth. Only one. Which is why, if you've ever wondered, why can one man's death pay for a multitude of people's sins? Because he's the only one that never wandered from the truth. He's the only one that never sinned. Everybody else has. Which is why Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody else dies, including every other major religious leader. They're still dead. Jesus is not because he was sinless. And so therefore, as the God man, his sacrifice on the cross is able to pay for all of our sins from wandering from the truth. 
(laughs) This is why we call it the good news. So that all of us sinners, great and small, can repent of our sins, trust in his sacrifice, the revelation of his resurrection, which knows that the price has been paid and we can be counted as though we have been clean. Because it is his righteousness that counted to us and our sin gets counted to him on the cross. The great exchange, the wonderful gospel. And so, friends, if you're wandering from or tempted to wander from the truth, return. Come back to Jesus. Come to Jesus. No matter what you've done, come to Jesus. Trust that his payments on the cross will, look at the language of verse 20, will cover your multitude of your sins and save your soul from death. Because otherwise, friend, you're left to make that payment for yourself then. Otherwise, you are left to cover your own sins in eternal punishment. So, friend, turn to Christ. Find food that is good, life and love that is eternal. And if you don't know how to do that or what to do or where to go, talk to me. Talk to somebody seen here. Talk to someone that invited you. There's a lot of Christians in this room that are going to be motivated to obey this. They want to help you. Okay. We've talked about the truth of God. We've talked about the wanderings from that truth of God. Let's now conclude by considering the rescue of the wanderer back to the truth. This is really where James is pushing us. Again, that language, correction is life and love. That's what we're learning from this passage this morning, that if the gospel is the truth, and it is, then guys, if we don't do this work, if we see people wandering and we don't do this work, we are, of all people, the most despicable people on planet Earth. If we just see people wandering from the truth and we just let them go, If we know the truth and we let them go, we would be terrible people. So how do we do this? How do we rescue? How do we bring, to use the language of verse 19, how do we bring the wanderer back? What's the process? What does this look like? Well, Jesus gives us a clear process in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. He shows us how this would go. And which, by the way, Jesus is just teaching what is taught back in Deuteronomy 17. So here's a process. So here's how it goes. Here's how we rescue the wanderer. You find out someone is either believing sin or acting in sin. Or you hear about it, you go and you verify. Upon it being verified, you approach that person that presumably you already have a relationship with. And between the two of you, you call them to repent. That is to say, you call them to take responsibility for that wrongdoing. And you ask... you. Lead them to ask God for forgiveness, to return to the truth of Christ. You show them how that sin dishonors God and his gospel. You call them back to Jesus. And Jesus teaches in that passage, you do that, you've gained your brother or sister. You've restored them. You've brought them uh, in that covering of the blood of Christ. But if you don't, Jesus says, if they don't repent between just the two of you, take one or two other witnesses along and go back to them. And between the two or three of you, you do the same thing. You call them to repentance. You pray, you listen, you call them to turn from the sin of disbelief or immorality. You call them to Jesus. And once again, if they repent, if they say, yes, this is wrong, and they ask for forgiveness, and they intend to live differently, believe differently, well, they, Jesus says, you've gained gained your brother, right? You've brought them again. They've revealed that they are under the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ's gospel. And so celebration is in order. But if not, Jesus says to tell it to the church. The church would be those of whom the uh, the people have bound into membership, who've covenanted, who's agreed to believe the gospel and live the gospel together. That's what the beauty of membership does. It defines that relationship so that if you wander, we'll love you enough to bring you back in. As opposed to if you don't join the church, we don't really, we've not really defined this relationship. Jesus says, tell it to the church. And this is significant, guys. When Jesus says, tell it to the church, he does not say, tell it to the elders. He could have said that. That's not what he said. He says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the assembly. That's what that word church means. And this is the exact same thing, again, that I've already said that James teaches here. We said earlier, this work of rescue is the work of the church. I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, Nathan and Joey, they got the masters of divinity, you know, and Chris and Chris and Ray. Well, they're elders, so this is sort of really for them. Why is Nathan telling me all of this stuff? No, no, this is your work, all of our work. Not just the leaders. 
More specifically, you members of Restoration Church, you covenanted, as I read earlier, to do this. And not because you're sort of obligated to do it, because you want to, right? For the witness of Christ and the good of these people. This is all of our work. So once again, like prayer, I want to be clear about this, guys. This is important. This is probably one of the questions about this passage. God ordains the means as well as the ends of his rescuing to save. Remember, the church is his hands and feet in his mouth. So if someone is wandering, the way that Jesus rescues them is through the means of which he has ordained to rescue them. Through you, through me. Now, when he, Jesus says, tell it to the church, he doesn't mean that the entire, we're going to have a church, you know, uh, members meeting and all of us are going to go over to so-and-so's house and knock on the door. And there we are. <laughs> that would be awkward. Could happen, I suppose. But what it does mean certainly is that the church will then pray for the repentance. And then if there's a relationship in place with that person or persons, they then go and call them to repentance. And again, if they repent, right, as this passage would have us to do, it would reveal that they are under the cover of Christ's atonement and the multitude of their sins are paid for. They're saved. Verse 20, they're saved. Restoration leads to celebration in the church. But if there isn't, they, after all of this process, they continue taking the name of Christ and yet not living in repentance then the church is to, as Jesus says, treat them as Jews or treat them as Gentiles or tax collectors. In other words, treat them as outsiders. And most fundamentally what that means is that the church that bound them, the church that said, we believe you're a Christian, they then withdraw their collective belief. We're not sure that you're in Christ anymore. That's what they're doing by taking them out of membership. And they would call that person in particular to not take the Lord's Supper together. That's why you've heard that language of excommunication. So X, out of the communion. Like, don't come to the table. And what we're doing in that is we're saying to them, we don't understand that you have a place at the table in heaven, so don't have, don't come and take it here. We would uh, not desire that person, I want to be clear about this, we would hope that that person would still come to this gathering. When we say they're released from membership and they've been excommunicated, that doesn't mean we don't want them to be around us. Doesn't mean that we want, don't want them to come to church. Matter of fact, we would say that's the most important thing we want them to do. Please come. Sit under the word. But the church would take this action so as to communicate the importance of their unrepentance. To warn them of the coming judgment while there's still time to restore them. To place them, right, outside so that they would learn, they would then desire to come inside. That's the idea. To cut off that relationship as it was been going so that they would then go, I want that. And then they come back. And so guys, that's, let me say three things about this before I conclude. This work of going to rescue, the nature of this work of pursuing the wanderer, the nature of the work is restorative, not punitive. We're not punishing people. Only God can do that. We don't do that. The nature of this work of pursuance is restorative. Right? 1 Corinthians 5, 5 makes that so clear. The nature of bringing someone back inside the truth is restorative, not punitive. And secondly, the nature of this work or the spirit of this work is gentleness. Gentleness. The spirit of the work is gentleness. Galatians 6.1 makes this so clear. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. So we don't do this work with pride or punishment in our hearts. We pursue the wanderer like a parent pursues a wandering child. To restore in gentleness and thirdly, in love. The nature of the work is restorative. The spirit of the work is gentleness. The aim of the work is love. I get that from 1 Corinthians thirteen six in particular. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 1, 5. The aim of our charge, he's writing to Timothy as a elder. The aim of our charge is love. Say that again. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so the nature of this work is restorative. Bring them back. Spirit of gentleness. Aim is love. And after all, guys, isn't this what Jesus did for us? Isn't this what he did? Didn't he rescue us from our wandering? Wasn't it our savior that said, 
What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. That was the words of our Savior. Jesus goes on to say, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. (laughs) That's, That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus left heaven in order to rescue us from our wanderings from the truth. Guys, this is the very, the gospel is the very definition of life and love. Correction is life and love. And so as opposed, friends, to the more destructive teaching of our culture that says it's more authentic to let someone be who they are living in sin, the church of Jesus Christ loves someone by rescuing them from any known sin and bringing them under the cover of Christ's blood in order that their sins would be paid for, in order that they would be not who they want to be, but who God made them to be. For his glory and their good. Jesus says in John 8.32. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And so by the blood of the covenant of Christ. Christ has rescued us to know the truth of his gospel. And his word. So that we might be free. Freedom is not found in being who we think we are, but freedom is found by being who God made us to be, knowing and living and loving the truth. And so the more that we as a collective congregation labor to teach the truth, preach the truth, pray the truth, and be a one of the, uh, people that kind of rescue those that are wandering from the truth, the more we will enjoy our freedom, the more that we will live in that authentic Christianity that James has been talking about, and the more that we do that, the better witness we will be to our neighbors that need this. That they might be rescued from their multitude of sins. And come up under the covering of Christ and his blood. So beloved I end with this. Be bold. Be faithful. Be courageous. And committed. Be authentic Christians. By the grace of God. Who not only hear God's word. But do God's word. But if we. If, and if we do. Restoration church. We can be that pillar and buttress of the truth in a world of confusion. Any loving parent would do this for their child. Out of love for our Heavenly Father and for each other, may we do this work in gentleness and in love for the good of our neighbors and the glory of our Savior, King, Christ the Lord, who has done that for us. Let's pray to Him now. Father, first, I thank you for the hope of the gospel that all of us who are repenting and believing on Christ the Lord, you've rescued us. You came and got us. So, Lord, may we give ourselves as a church to to arise, to do this work, to love like this. It's hard to do, God. Sometimes it doesn't even feel loving, but it's good work. And for those that might be tempted to wander or are wandering, God, remind them of the love of Christ and the beauty of the church to bring them back in to the truth. Bring them back, God, I pray, maybe this morning. We love you. We thank you that you're a heavenly father and that you pursue wanderers like ourselves. May we do the same for the glory of your name and the good of our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.